ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Shifting today to some baseball. Our guest is a former colleague of ours back when ESPN Los Angeles, the local site, was a... Former colleague, Andy, but current friend. Yes, he is a current friend. He founded the very popular Dodgers website, Dodger Thoughts. He's written for the LA Times, LA Daily News, SI, Variety. He is the author of the book, 100 Things... Dodger fans should know and do before they die, and the best of Dodger thoughts is new book, Brothers in Arms. Koufax, Kershaw, and the Dodgers' extraordinary pitching tradition is a treasure trove of factoids and stories Dodger fans will absolutely devour. Our friend, as Brian mentioned, John Weissman. John, how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me here. Uh, my, my first question, John, have you augmented the hundred things Dodgers fans should do before they die to include Reed Brothers in Arms uh, before? <laughs> Because that would be a good it's, for the new edition. You know, it's funny, because it was always the things to do part of that book was always the hardest part to add to, um, and that's a good idea. You should. <laughs> what, what do you, you keep what do you, adding chapters where you read my stuff. Or, John, we can make this really difficult from the beginning. What do you remove of the 100 things in order to add your book? Well, it's interesting. I, the, when I, I think, like... There was an original version of that book and then a revision, and then I think the original version had Russell Martin, and then the revision replaced Martin with Matt Kemp. And then last year, because there was actually going to be another revision if the Dodgers won the World Series uh, last year, and so I was thinking, well, of course, uh, Matt Kemp would probably be a chapter I could remove, and then look what happened. Matt Kemp wants to stay in that book. (laughs) It's very important to him. (laughs) Um, so I guess to to begin, what is it, John, about Dodger pitchers and pitching in general that that fascinates you and wanting to make you write this book? Well, I just feel like um, ever since becoming aware of baseball in the 1970s as a kid, I'd sort of been schooled in the fact that the Dodgers had this pitching tradition, and everyone talked about the Dodger pitching tradition, and it frankly it was still growing even as I was getting older, you know, I, I was raised in the era of Sutton and Hooten, and uh, then, you know, Fernando comes, and then Oral comes, and then you have the international guys, and then ultimately it all leads up to Kershaw today. And as I was thinking about, I did want to write another book, and as I was thinking about things to write about, um, at first I was thinking about individual biographies, and the people I was interested in were all pitchers, like Hershiser or Don Newcomb, or Fernando, guys like them, then I realized I could do them all at once, and I had to like do a double take and literally look online to see to make sure no one had ever done it because it was it is such a definitive part of Dodger history, and I think and to some extent baseball history, like the Dodgers are such an important franchise in baseball history, and this is their defining characteristic the way you would uh, there's probably ten books about the Bronx bombers, for example. Um, in that aspect of the Yankees, and yet this seemed to be like a little hidden gap in the literature. So I was eager to take it on. East Coast bias. Um, yeah. So I'm, one of the things I think is is kind of fascinating just about when you, Dodgers pitching generally is is this kind of bookend because you do talk about how it's, it's really kind of post war is really post World War Two is when uh, the Dodgers pitching thing the mystique kind of started to build up, but there's this perfect bookend almost and it's on the cover of the book really between Koufax and Kershaw where you're really talking about these two players that had so much in common in terms of dominance in terms of handedness in terms of all these other things how how much in terms of of the thread of Dodgers pitching is tied up in that 
thing that that Koufax mirrored by Kershaw, you know, fifty years later, sixty years later. Yeah, I think you know they're one and two or they're two and one, depending on how you want to look at it. And um, I think the book doesn't necessarily happen without both of them. I mean, and I don't. And in other words, I don't know that we're still talking about the Dodger pitching tradition today if not for them. Um, Kershaw is key in terms of you know the fact that of taking it into the 21st century because without him, people might fairly question you know what exactly Dodger pitching was about in the last 10 years or so. And then, of course, Koufax is the one, I don't need to explain it, who takes it to the next level. I mean, as you alluded to, I think you can point to a starting point for the pitching tradition in the 1940s, which was when Branch Rickey came in and as general manager and really put the emphasis on that in the organization top to bottom and made it a absolute priority. And that ultimately helps get the Dodgers over the hump over the World Series hump in Brooklyn. But it could have died pretty quickly, if not for really two things. I think moving into Dodger Stadium, which was at the time a pitching orient a very extreme pitching park, and, you know, Koufax and Drysdale taking it to un- unprecedented levels. What I mean, from writing the book, what what did you discover in terms of that could speak to why the Dodgers have had this consistent history of finding good pitchers is it prioritization scouting luck yeah it's all of those and the thing is i think with the success this was a franchise that depending you know people will disagree about where you should date its roots from some you know the 1890 date for example when they joined the national league or even before that when they were an american association team doesn't matter for the first 50 or 60 years of dodger history they have very little success, you know, only occasionally win an NL pennant and randomly sort of stumble into good pitchers. It's not that they didn't have good pitchers, but for example, the really the greatest pitcher of the pre-war era and, and the one that still today has the highest wins above replacement in a Dodger uniform is Dazzy Vance. And Dazzy Vance was a guy who was kind of a throw-in in a deal they were pursuing a minor league catcher, uh, and they and the owner of the franchise in, the, I believe, New Orleans sort of insisted that they take Dazzy Vance along with him. Vance doesn't make his debut with the Dodgers until after his 30th birthday. And um, this is a long way of saying, like, this is there were sort of accidental uh, successes with the Dodgers. After Ricky came in and after they started to have success with the pitching, it just sort of fed upon itself, and they looked for ways. The key to it is they looked for ways to innovate, ways with teaching, ways with personnel, um, the ways with instruction, the fact that they, you know, it's not an accident that it's Ricky who's, you know, getting guys like Don Newcomb out of the Negro Leagues and into a Dodger uniform. And then the O'Malley family takes it farther by uh, going to Japan, going to Mexico, going to the Dominican, and really... Uh, Channel Park from Korea and making sure, you know, leaving no stone unturned. So, you know, they had catchers who have prioritized it. They had Red Adams, who many think is the greatest pitching coach of all time, taking over in the post-Kofax era. They just had it all come together. And yeah, there's been a little bit of luck. You know, they had their terrible season in 2005 and were able to draft Clayton Kershaw the following year. So, um, but that all plays into it. And I just don't think any organization can match that. And it's, you know, it, 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 there are little things too. Like, I didn't know in reading the, the stuff about Koufax, like, 
they were using charts and or, you know kind of I guess what we considered rudimentary sabermetrics and analytics and stuff long before any of those things even had had a name. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, uh, it's a good way to put it. And they did have uh, someone on staff who was extremely interested in statistics. And then and they had a manager in Walter Alston who wasn't, I don't think anyone would say Walter Alston wasn't old school, but he wasn't close to the idea of like just charting things would yield information. And um, again, it all goes into the fact that they weren't sort of it's not that they weren't traditionalists in that organization or that they didn't uh, revere the past, but they never really were content to sort of rest on that. They, I think they knew they needed to keep uh, going after new ideas, and I think they probably genuinely thought it was fun to be on the cutting edge of that stuff, you know, even 50 or 60 years ago. You mentioned uh, Koufax just a second ago, and one of the most interesting elements you introduced about him in the book is just how much he hates the legend of Sandy Koufax, you know, like these myths of overriding intelligence being too aloof to truly be passionate about baseball. Just can you elaborate a little more on that and just why you think it bothers him so much? Well, I think he's a guy who the truth is very important to him. And he's a guy that so much has been written about from afar that, I mean, I can't speak to how much he reads about what's written about him, but it was pretty clear that while he was an active player, he was sort of in tune with what the conversation was and that he found that conversation to be just off target. And it was really fascinating to me and revelatory to go back in time to this um, memoir that he sort of, it was, uh, you know, dictated, you know, it was written with, as things were done with a sports writer, but it's very much Koufax in, in its heart. And talk about the fact that already, even in 1966, people had formed this idea of him that he was a guy who was, you know, dropping down beneath his station to play baseball and really was, he should have been a college professor, but he was, he was slumming in the major leagues or something. And it was, it could have been farther from the truth. He loved the game. He, he, was enraptured by the game and he was it was always this puzzle for him to figure out and he embraced every aspect of it and he was happiest in his life on that pitching mound (laughs) and uh, it's wonderful to read it's nice to know that this was a guy that you know for all the physical suffering he went through he had no regret other than the fact that he couldn't do it longer and, and John, you like too, because there's there's stuff in there about how you know he, he had these moments where he thought about walking away. He's going to buy a radio station, which I thought was an interesting. <laughs> he could thing. have been he our would, boss. He had, it's right. He You're already right. had businesses. He like he had these opportunities, and he kept not doing it. And this is before he became you know quote unquote Sandy Koufax. And so um, you know he he never left, even when you know I guess he felt like he had the security and the money. And he could have done it if he wanted to. Yeah, there was a great story in there where um, after one difficult season, he basically threw his gear in the trash and uh, was seriously, as you said, uh, looking for something else to do because he felt he had given so many years. I mean, keep in mind, for those who don't know, that Koufax was signed as a teenager, and for the, you know, the better part of five, six, seven years, he was struggling. He'd have incredible moments, but he was struggling to be consistent and and struggling with his command and that sort of thing. And it was for all the time he put in, he, he just 
wasn't sure he was ever going to crack in. And so he threw his, throws his gear away one year, and he thinks about it over the winter, and he rationalized at one point, basically, I owe it to the Dodgers who have invested in me to come back and, and go until I just can't go anymore. And he came back in the spring, and, you know, the uh, Nobi Kwano, the clubhouse manager, had rescued his gear from the trash, so he was able to give it to him, which was a nice thing. What is the? And I know John, you you know you you have connections, to entertainment, and, and and understand that world as well. Like I always think of of Seinfeld as a show that if it came on the air today on network TV, uh, might not have been given the ability to to live because it was very low rated, uh, you know, in its first season. Koufax struggled mightily, as you as you mentioned. If he comes along today, you know, in modern baseball with the today's system and all these other things, does he get six, seven years with one team to be able to develop into the guy he became? I think the answer is a qualified yes to that. I, I don't think it's. I mean, you know, who knows what would happen, but I I don't think this the years that it took would necessarily change that much, but the, the process would be radically different because, again, uh, it's like uh, you compare Julio Urias, for example, who's the teenage phenom of our time. Uh, so he's the guy that you're essentially talking about in that scenario with Koufax. And you'd handle a, a teenage Koufax with that kind of arm very, very, very carefully. And so I don't know what that would mean in terms of his of Koufax's development, whether it would help him out or whether it might have slowed things down too much. Um, I mean, Urias, the, the funny thing with that is like the first chapter in my book is about Ralph Branca, who was uh, people only know for the shot heard around the world home run that he gave up, but he was the teenage phenom of his time. He was sort of the original teenage phenom in this pitching tradition. And the Dodgers basically said, Oh, he's young. So we can throw him out there as long as we want. And, at one point, uh, Branca pitches a 17-10 to 10 complete game victory. You know, he gives up five runs in the first and ten runs in the game and goes the distance and throws about 175 pitches in the game. I mean, it's just, that's what's so radically different about the eras. And I think the Dodgers probably, there's still more to learn about what the best way to bring up a young pitcher is even 70 years later. But it probably wasn't that. <laughs> it probably wasn't <laughs> probably 200. But like, cause you, you had a, you, you mentioned in the last game he threw in the Coliseum, the last game, the Coliseum, Koufax threw over 200 pitches in that game. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It's insane. It's, you, you, it's, it's hard to physically comprehend that in this era. <laughs> yeah. Pitch count wasn't the same thing back then. <laughs> well, it was, it was more, more <laughs> <Yes>. pitches. <laughs> we want to count higher. Um, the other thing about Koufax that I think is really interesting and unique is, you know, whether by choice or not, he went out on top and, and it at, you know, like at the top of his game, you know, pitching just phenomenally. And that's something you don't see with a lot of even legendary athletes. You know, you always see that inevitable decline and, and you wonder about guys who hung around a little bit too long. And with Koufax, nobody even remembers the struggles. They just remember the way he finished his career, which is as good as anybody we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I think if you only if you were sort of a Dodger fan from the Brooklyn era, would you remember the struggles in any meaningful way? Because the, the second chapter of his career was so profoundly magnificent. Um, and so I think... Uh, 
we're now at a place where Clayton Kershaw is 30 years old, which is the age Koufax was when he retired. And uh, Kershaw, I don't think, knock on wood, is facing the sa- nearly the same kind of health issues that Koufax is. But it will be interesting mm. to see how... Uh, <laughs> sure hasn't felt that way lately, John. i got to be honest. Well, but I mean, I think I, even even... Even in the worst case scenario with Kershaw, I mean, you have to understand what Koufax was battling. Right, I mean, Koufax, like, Kershaw can still bend his arm. Yeah, like Kershaw. Yeah, yeah, like Kershaw. Let me see Kershaw throw two hundred innings. Two hundred <laughs> pitches right. in a game, right? Two hundred pitches. But it's going to be interesting to see how Kershaw's uh, age thirty years, you know, thirty plus, play out and what that means. I mean, and whether if what is possibly likely, which is that he becomes sort of like a number two, number three starter in the latter years of his career. And, and if that's acceptable to people who have come to expect him to be the greatest, if it's acceptable to him, whether he'd be able right. he'd be willing to, to pitch at that, uh, with, with that kind of status. Um, I, I, I think the others, the, uh, one of the other things, and you, you touched on it briefly earlier is the, the, the manias that, the Dodgers have had like we're the rare franchise that has had two different and fully national manias between Hideo Nomo and obviously Fernando. What can you kind of just sort of compare and contrast what those were for the for the organization for those pitchers and, and what made them similar? What made them different? Um, I mean, uh, beyond I want to say that I mean I want to say that Fernando mania is still bigger. Mm-hmm. And more of a sort of profound experience and um, more shocking uh, because while he had had a, this September trial in 1980 as a reliever where he didn't give up an earned run, no one expected, starting with him making that opening day start and pitching a shutout against the Astros in 81, no one just could have foreseen what had happened. Um, with with Nomo, and by the way, I call it pneumonia. I've <laughs> called it pneumonia from day one when he made his debut, and I don't. It sounds much better than Nomo mania to me, so I'm sticking with that. And uh, Nomo was Nomo was an all star in Japan. He was a three time winner of their version of the Cy Young Award, and so while there was definitely question about how well he would do. In the major leagues, it, it, I don't think it was as, as shocking as it was fantastic, but I don't think it was quite as shocking. It probably had the same cultural impact for the Japanese that Fernando had for the Mexican Dodger fans. But I think Fernando was definitely more of like a city or county wide phenomenon, even kind of a national phenomenon. Yeah, and I'm glad you touched on the, on the the cultural significance of it because I think there is something kind of fascinating about and and, and speaks to the Dodgers that you could have these two giant communities that are energized by Dodgers pitchers in that way. How does that you sort of you think reflect the place the Dodgers have in the city uh, that they play in? Yeah, I think, I mean, and one of the things with Fernando and Fernando Mania was that it sort of closed the wound of Dodger Stadium being built in Chavez Ravine, which had, again, by the time the O'Malley's got to Los Angeles, um, you know, Los Angeles had already taken over that site. The, the O'Malley's didn't have anything to do with uh, the former residents being forced out by eminent domain. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it didn't. It still wasn't easy for a lot of people to tolerate 
the Dodgers playing on their former home. And I think from everything I've read and from people that I've spoken to, Fernando Mania helped heal a lot of those wounds and uh, I, I helped in, their, in that way sort of seal the Dodgers as this cultural institution in Los Angeles in a way that maybe they hadn't quite been before in a, in a way that no other team, in, including maybe the Lakers, might be. I mean, I'm not putting down the Lakers' importance in Los Angeles, but I don't know that it has the same sort of uh, cultural resonance. Yeah, some of my favorite stories in general, John, in the book are just about the international guys because it's hard enough to make it in the big leagues as it is, but when you add these cultural adjustments on top of it, the stories become really compelling. And then I think, too, because these pitchers happen to, I think, by and large, be pretty likable on top of being good, when they reach these great heights, there's something even more mythical because of the where you know that they came from and everything that comes to being great in a different culture. Yeah, it, it was sort of amazing to me that every pitcher had a great story. I mean, you hope for that. Um, but you sort of expect that one of these guys would just be like, yeah, I went to, went to high school, got drafted, and made the major leagues, and that's all that really happened. And it wasn't like that. And then particularly for the international guys, I mean, one of my favorite stories, and it's not a, a headline-grabbing story or anything like that, but Chano Park, who I interviewed probably for – a better part of two hours for the book. Um, he was fantastic talking about his childhood for a couple reasons. One was that he came to uh, Los Angeles on a traveling Korean high school all-star team at 16, and his first trip to Dodger Stadium was with that, and he sat in the top deck and watched sort of like the Brett Butler-era Dodgers. I, it might have been like during Eric Harris's rookie year or something like that. And didn't understand English and just, under, you know, but listened to the music of the charge being played and watched the game from afar and stayed for close to an hour after the game just sort of basking in the atmosphere. And then the second time he comes to Dodger Stadium, he's a Dodger. <laughs> you know, he's wearing the uniform. And he said he had, like, when he took the mound, he actually pitched his, he made his major league debut in the ninth inning of what was to be Kent Merker's no hitter by the Braves against the Dodgers. And so everyone's waiting for Merker to take the mound in the bottom of the ninth and Park takes the mound in the top of the ninth. And he says he's having double vision <laughs> because he can't, he's, he can't relax. He didn't relax until basically he gave up a two run double. And then he said he finally got his act together. And, and Park also talked about how he was a, he was a fan of Hideo Nomo's as a, when Park was a teenager in Korea, Nomo was the all-star in Japan that Park was worshiping. And so he couldn't, and then to find himself in the same clubhouse as Nomo in America just blew his mind. So, I mean, it, 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 I don't know, that stuff's kind of fascinating to me to learn about. You, uh, you, you have chapters and sections of the book devoted to the, to the, the bigger names and the, the arms that people uh, most closely associated with the Dodgers, but you also have little, you know, little snippets uh, in there about guys who have come through, who have uh, maybe guys in the bullpen or whatever. And my, you know, Takashi Saito, for example, it's just an amazing story. Also, once gave me a pair of socks that I still have. Um, oh, but cool. like little guys, like you know, these these players and Jose Lima. Oh yeah, I remember that, and all these all these other things. What were some of the, who were some of those guys that you love the most that you got a chance to write about where maybe they're not the best, they're not the most significant, 
but they have this great niche within Dodger history uh, that you got to explore a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. These guys are part of the fabric of the pitching tradition, and yet um, I I turned in my book, and it was 50,000 words over the assigned word count. So trying to devote even more space to these guys would have just, it would have blown the lid off the thing. But it was, I mean, Lima's a perfect example. I mean, I think if you're a Dodger fan from the past 25 years, um, that's just, any, the mention of the words Jose Lima just brings a smile to your face, and it's really because of one game. I mean, it's not, I mean, he had a kind of semi-magical three quarters of a season with the Dodgers, completely out of nowhere. But that shutout he pitched uh, in the playoffs against the Cardinals and the whole idea of Lima time, uh, I mean, that was basically the best Dodger playoff memory of in a 20-year stretch. Yes, it was. It was yeah. <laughs> and it was the whole, the, the con, you said the concept of something like Jose Lima being good enough that you would have something called Lima time was yeah. absurd. And, and he had it a was colorful abs- personality yeah, on but top it, of it. The whole thing was absurd. It never should have happened. Yeah, so um, there's probably like 20 of those sprinkled through. I mean, one of my personal favorites is Pedro Estacio because he, I was at his major league debut, and that was with, um, you know, this basically the worst L.A. Dodger team ever, um, the 1992 team. And he came out there, and everyone was miserable. You know, I mean, everyone on the team was miserable, and every Dodger fan was miserable, and Pedro Estacio made his major league debut, and he threw a shutout, and he struck out 10. Um, it's, I said it was statistically the best pitching debut in Los Angeles Dodger history, but it wasn't even just that. He throws the final pitch, and it's a, it's a, fly, it's a fly ball you know, to medium outfield. And he starts jumping up and down like a little leaguer, like he's won the World Series, like he's pitched a perfect game in the World Series. And it was such a redemptive moment to re- remind us it's a game, and there's more to life. I mean, I'm not winning and losing matter, but there's also more to life than that. And it was just such a great moment. I would have hated to tell this story without at least mentioning him in passing. Yeah, that, and that was actually also like an ethos that you used to remind people a lot with Dodger thoughts. You know, like, let's try to keep all of this in perspective. Um, you'd mentioned the original count in 50,000 words over and all that. What was the either best or favorite story that you had to leave on the cutting room floor? Um, well, it's it, no, it went fifty thousand words over because I kind of refused to do that. I mean, oh, oh, so aren't... so it ended. Okay, so the book is just fifty thousand okay, words thicker than no. anybody expected. Exactly. Okay. They didn't make. I I sort of as I as this moment was happening, where I realized I just was going to come in way over. I sort of went into denial for probably no less than a month, where I was just going to like it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. And then about two months. of before the deadline, I was like, I should probably say something. <laughs> All right, well, well, then if that's the case, then for Jonathan- people who don't know, like fifty thousand words in a book, that's like a third of an inch, right? Give or take of like the book's thickness, more or less. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, in other words, it's it was almost twice as long as it was supposed to. Be. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, the book we did was like seventy thousand words or something, so that's basically two thirds of a book extra. Uh, with that in mind, John, if you're able to go 50,000 words over, I am going to complain a little bit that Joe Bimel didn't at least get a box. He was, um, he was... Noted. <laughs> noted. <laughs> he, just, he had an interesting story. He had a bobblehead. Uh, he was a good dude. 
true. It's all true. Um, but yeah, it would have been, you know, 50,500 words over. <laughs> you yeah. had to be responsible. <laughs> um, yeah. So I sent in this very, very nervous email and they said, they basically bought in. They said, yeah, it's a better book with all this stuff. So uh, I'm happy to say it's all there. All I know is there's 50,000 words extra and not non, none of it is devoted to Van Lingle Mungo, arguably the greatest Dodger name of all time. Um, who are the guys that you look at that you were surprised to remember how good they were? Because I was looking, you have a chart at the beginning of the book about like all-time war, mm-hmm. and uh, Chad Billingsley is on there. And I'd forgotten, like, you know what, Chad Billingsley, like, first of all, Zach Greinke, who was only here for like an hour when you kind of go back and think about it, is 28th all-time in war. He was uh, 51 and 15 with the Dodgers. He was really good. But then I thought about Billingsley, I kind of forgot how good he was for a while. Like, who are the, like, who, who surprised you when you kind of went back and thought about it? Like, oh, he was better than I remember. Um, well, one thing about Billingsley, before I answer your question, is that I was thinking the other day, just like, you know, Billingsley's kind of got a lot, got a lot of grief while he was pitching here. Nothing for but. Not being, uh, not being a complete game kind of guy, but how valuable would he be now as if he just needed a guy to go six innings, which is basically all they're asking of pitchers now. I mean, he would be tremendous in that role. Timing is everything. Um, Bob Welch, I think, is the is my first answer to your question. Um, Bob Welch is from my era growing up, and, you know, I, have, I think everyone knows about the strikeout of Reggie Jackson and then sort of forgets what came after that, um, especially because he was a reliever in that, you know, at that moment. Um, Bob Welch is 10th all-time in Dodger history and wins above replacement. That's not the be-all and end-all of all statistics, but it's a pretty good indicator of his value. Um, in Los Angeles, he's right behind Oral and Fernando and ahead of guys like, uh, oh, I don't know, Bert Hooten, Martinez, yeah. Hooten, Don Newcomb, uh, Kevin Brown. Nice guy. And again, that's just counting his Dodger era, right. not his Oakland A's era where he won a Cy Young Award. So I think um, people know about Welsh, about the strikeout. They know he recovered from alcoholism, uh, but they don't real, really remember that he was just a great starting pitcher for many, many years. Uh, there, there are a lot of pages uh, at the end devoted to Kershaw, as people would expect. And you, and you acknowledge the greatness, but also the playoff struggles, even noting that they're not quite as bad as the detractors often claim. And I, I agree with you, but at the same time, he hasn't consistently been the same playoff pitcher as he's been in the regular season. What do you, what do you make of the trend and how it all does it shape your perception of Kershaw's career? Um, I will say Kershaw I found to be the most difficult chapter to, to, chapter to write, partly because he's the pitcher that everyone knows the best, and partly because obviously his story isn't done being told, but partly because of sort of what your question is leading to, which is like he is the greatest, arguably already the greatest regular season pitcher of all time. I mean, if he has the lowest ERA of any starting pitcher in the past hundred years, he's he's been far and away better than his peers at his peak. And, you know, you can, he's certainly in the conversation of like when you're talking Pedro Martinez or Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, and some of the guys that are older go back to Walter Johnson. He's a guy. And then he gets to the postseason and he's had a mix of really three things, um, 
fantastic performances that are forgotten a day later, um, performances where he's been absolutely unlucky, and then moments where I think he has to own the fact that he he just needed to get three more outs and didn't do it. Um, in other words, I think some of it is circumstance. For example, there there were years where the Dodger bullpen was so unreliable that it just seemed better to leave Kershaw in than take a chance on the bullpen, and other times when they did go to the bullpen and the bullpen blew the lead. But I do, you know, I'm sitting there waiting to hit send on the final draft of my book, and Kershaw is two or three innings away in game five of basically putting this question to bed. You know, the Dodgers have given him two leads in game five of the World Series, and all he's got to do is really, I think if he had just made it to the fifth inning with the lead, I think it would be done um, with the way that bullpen was going, and it just didn't happen and for whatever reason. And so it's an open question. I don't know how ultimately if people will hold that against him long term or if people will sort of take the big picture and say um, he was great regardless. I, I, well, I, I mean, I, I think I think we all kind of know what people will do. I think they'll hold it against him. And, and, you know, <laughs> and to some degree, and, and I, I hopefully within a relative context, like we're talking about a guy who is the one of the five five greatest pitchers of all time. Set that aside. Where is he? Five four three two one. Then you have to start differentiating between what Kershaw really didn't do, and I think that the, that game is a is a perfect encapsulation of it. Where like he really had the opportunity to get out of it and didn't. Versus a Koufax who didn't burn as as bright for as long as as Kershaw did, but had these dominant moments in the postseason. Um, where Kershaw probably just ends up behind someone like Koufax in the in the great ordering of things. Yeah, I mean, I think even to take a modern apples-to-apples apples example, uh, Kershaw versus Madison Bumgarner, I don't think there's any doubt that you'd rather have the – that Kershaw has had the better career, but there are going to be many people who say, I'll take Bumgarner's postseason and not even worry about the regular season comparison. Um, I've enjoyed – the Kershaw ride so much, and it's been going on. I mean, I, I feel like we've been so lucky to have experienced it for 10 years and counting that I'm not willing to trade any of that. Um, you, think, you, even, you think Kershaw would, though? You think he would trade yeah, it? Kershaw would rather have a World Series. He would trade it. He would trade his career for Bumgarner? Yeah, uh, if it, maybe not phrased that way, but I think he would trade his career. I think he would trade his record for a World Series title, yeah. I do. I think he's sincere about that. And maybe that's part of what's so hard for him. I don't know. That's just me speculating. Yeah, I mean, it also it, it puts a real premium and a real urgency on, you know, him trying to be able to do this while he's still at, you know, the top of his powers. You know, I mean, the 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 clock, I mean, no matter what you think of what is going on with his health and the, and the future with that, the the clock's definitely ticking on him. Yeah, I think he started to see that last year. I think last year was the year where the Dodgers sort of adjusted their, and Kershaw worked together to adjust his routine so that he wasn't pitching on short rest in like the NLDS to make sure that, in other words, if he wasn't going to be able to pitch in the World Series effectively, it wasn't really worth screwing around with any of the other stuff. And uh, it really, really almost paid off. He was fantastic in his first World Series start. And he was fantastic in the first three, I think, three innings of Game 5. 
it was shock. I mean, do people remember how shocking it was that the Dodgers had this big lead and Kershaw, I think, was close to perfect for the first three innings and then it all of a sudden just uh, dissolved? Uh, amazing. I uh, Unfortunately, I think I there think, are a lot of Dodger fans do. who don't find it shocking. Um, That's what's crazy yeah. about it. What do you think, my last question, what do you think happens, John, with this? Because I've said, we've had this debate on the radio a lot over the course of the last five, six months, and I've always said, I don't, I don't know if it's a given that first that Kershaw would opt out, depending on how his season goes. But then I don't also don't think it's a given that the Dodgers would, would open up the vault and pay him automatically like people have assumed that they would. I think there's a, a chance they do the what the Cardinals did with Albert Pujols, and you give him a, a very good offer that you know someone else will beat by a fair amount. And you say, look, we did what we could, and he's got to move on, because the Dodgers just don't pay for past performance like that. They just don't. So how do you think this, you know, signs of arm trouble, the back issues, and some evidence of slippage, how do you think this plays out this offseason? Well, I've maintained all along that I think the Dodgers are still the odds-on favorite to keep him, even if he opts out, because um, there isn't really, whatever the market value of Kershaw is going to be, it's going to be X, okay? And whether that will fluctuate depending on how healthy he is and what kind of year he has, but it'll it'll be whatever number it's going to be. There's no organization that Kershaw is interested in that is more likely to pay above that number than the Dodgers. I mean, basically the speculation about Kershaw is he goes to Houston or Texas because those are his home state teams, and Houston is a great team, but doesn't really have the capacity, I don't think, to, you know, they've, they've invested hugely in their starting rotation already. Mm-hmm. And they have Verlander, I think, still for at least another year. I don't, it's, they're, I don't see Houston being able to outbid the Dodgers when the Dodgers not only see the same value in Kershaw, whatever that value is, but also have this incredible marketing component with Kershaw and this investment in his legacy. And by the way, Kershaw ha- understands that, I think. Um, Texas might have more reason to get Kershaw, but they're a less att- and they're closer to where he lives, obviously. But they're a less attractive organization for him to join, um, and not a great pitching environment for him. And then there's a wild card like the Yankees, which you know um, they actually do need starting pitching, and they certainly wouldn't be lacking for money. Maybe there's a chance Kershaw decides, yeah, I'm going to go to New York and pitch where Stanton and Judge are, and do that. Um, that's all possible, but I still don't. You do, we don't know what's going to happen, but I don't see any team that has a better rationale for overbidding on Kershaw than the Dodgers do. Whereas, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think other with the pool host situation, which I think is actually a good comparison, but I think there were probably more teams that had reason. There were probably more teams that had a better fit for pool holes. Well, than, yeah, and it's certainly the you know going to the American League where you could age and all that stuff. But the Cardinals, you know, I think breathe, you know quietly breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief when they didn't get him, which I just thought was was kind of interesting. I lied. I have one last thing for you. You do this, uh, you do the, the updated version of this book in 10 years. Is there anybody that we see in the organization or people coming around that, that get their own chapter? Well, um, I started, Walker Bueller wrote page one of his chapter uh, last uh, at his last start that I saw. So there's one possibility. I actually thought Julio might, before he got injured, you know, he seemed very much 
the logical choice. Um, I don't think you can project necessarily farther than that. There's no one in the organization currently, no veteran that would merit a new right. chapter, I don't think. But um, I do think there's, I do think there's something about Bueller that might get him at least in the sort of, not necessarily the Kershaw range, but like the sort of Bert Hooten, Bob Welch, you know, uh, Jerry Royce, solid, reliable for years and years, you know, that could very much on the table. I, I'm still surprised, frankly, that Billingsley wasn't that guy, to be honest, but I think Bueller could be. And then, uh, John, the last question I have for you, the the book spans the pitching history of the Dodgers, which means by definition, it spans the history of the Dodgers. What stood out to you in writing this book, just in looking at the way the organization's evolved? Um. Well, I guess I feel like the pitching sort of symbolic of how it's evolved. I mean, it was a, it was just such a bumbling organization at at the outset, and now it's sort of like this polished, uh, you know, museum level piece. That which is not to say there aren't cracks in that you, that come up from time to time that need repair, but it is very much, I, I think in all of sports, has to be considered one of the m- most important organizations in all of sports. I mean, Lakers, Celtics, um, Dodgers, Yankees, you know, uh, I guess Packers and maybe Steelers, I don't know. Uh, I guess Patriots now, we have to say that. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, it's just, no one would have predicted, no one would have predicted that the Bums would become one of the most important teams in all of sports. The book is Brothers in Arms, Koufax, Kershaw, and the Dodgers' Extraordinary Pitching Tradition. The author is John Weissman. Congratulations, man, and thanks so much for the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much.